You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. Uh, I'm once again joined today by my good friend Chris Kasky uh, and I'm Pete Davison. Hey, how you doing? Alright. Been a little while since our last one. Um... But uh, yeah, uh, apologies for the schedule being slightly out of whack, if indeed a schedule exists. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting to these when we can, and uh, we've got plenty to talk about today. So uh, enjoy, basically. As always, we're going to use our standard three-part format. So this first segment, we're going to talk a bit about some recent happenings in uh, gaming news and such like. Second segment, we're going to be talking a little bit about what we've been playing recently. And our third segment is our topic discussion, which today we're going to be discussing uh, franchises that are long dead that we would like to come back. So let's uh, let's kick off with the news. And uh, I would like to start with uh, the news that there is a new Fantasy Star Online coming. Boo. Oh, you mean yay? Oh no, wait, it's for smartphones. <sighs> yeah. And it's ugly as sin. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not even, like, they're not even trying. Like, <laughs> like I know the, um, you know, I know you and I have our differences over, like, the amount we're willing to accept uh, live 2D and, like, that, like, Flash-style animation. Yeah. But, like, as we had discussed in a previous episode, when it's not done right and it's done inattentively, it looks very cheap. Yeah, and, like, absolutely. And the, the animation for, like, the combat in this Fantasy Star mobile game just looks like like paper puppet theater. It's, like, oh, really, really abysmal looking. Yeah, I've, I've not actually seen it in motion yet, but... Uh... Visually, it looks very much like Fate Grand Order, but uh, Fate Grand Order's actually got some really nice animation in its battle scenes, so, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. Um, there is uh, a, a story that went up on Silicon Era today, or yesterday, yesterday, I think, uh, where the uh, Fantasy Star director and producer explains why the game has a different setting. So, um, the, uh, the producer, Shuntaro Tanaka, thought that the Fantasy Star series wasn't active enough for a series that had gone on for 30 years, uh, so he and his uh, fellow director Tomomasa Chin came up with a proposal for this game as well. Um, so yeah, 30 years long series, and they decide to to pick it up again with a a, um, a smartphone game. <laughs> so, um, but apparently the reason why this new game has got a different setting from Fantasy Star Online 2 rather than being a, a spin-off game which might have made more sense uh, is uh, apparently because it be could, could become a hurdle for people who didn't play sorry it could become a hurdle for people who don't play fantasy star on 2 if it were directly related although the game has been made to be easy to get into even for those new to the series the common elements in the series still remain so they're they're kind of going for something that is new but feels like fantasy star apparently but yeah and i'm all about you know i'm all about that i mean technically speaking fantasy star online was a reboot after the original four fantasy star games with a different setting and a slightly different aesthetic yeah fantasy Fantasy star universe didn't take place in the same game as same universe as fantasy star online and that was another what at least three games when you count the psp games yeah um so you know i'm all about you know rebooting and, you know, it's not really no different than, say, what Final Fantasy does, since it's been releasing sequels in the same universes. But um, I don't particularly like the new direction visually for this mobile game because it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't have that distinct Fantasy Star look. 
No, no. I mean, it, it looks fairly standard gacha game. I mean, I'm not sure, not sure offhand who's the artist for it, but the the style actually looks quite familiar. Uh, but it, it's not a style I particularly associate with Fantasy Star. Right, right. And I'm not saying it's not a you know the art's beautiful. It's beautiful art, but it's not. Um, you know, I I associate a very certain aesthetic with Fantasy Star because it's one of the few places where like hard sci-fi meets anime in yeah. this like kind of brightly colored way, like I, you know, and it's just it's not hitting that for me. But yeah, it's a mobile well, game, so it's not like I'm going to play it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have played it even if it did have the classic Fantasy Star aesthetic because yeah, I'll just fire true. up my GameCube and play Episode One and Two again. Indeed. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if if uh, Fantasy Star has got enough sort of relevance to people online for it to be a success. Because I mean, the there are a, a few successful mobile gacha games right now, but it seems like every week there's as many stories of um, gacha games sh- shutting down as there are new ones now. So some stuff is lasting less than a year on the market. So mm-hmm. it remains to be seen if this is going to resonate with people in quite the same way as something like Grand Blue and um, and Fake Grand Order, because those are very much the outliers, I think, at the minute. Yeah, they've of, certainly uh, got the staying power. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, like, I think a lot of the problem is that um, a lot of these times they're releasing these gotcha games with specific ties to these old-school gaming um franchises right like fantasy star we're seeing there's the star ocean one which yeah launched and died in like a blip right like nobody's even talking about that already the star ocean one that um, one did launch in the west recently actually and i know that's, that, that's what i'm saying it was like two yeah. days where everyone was like oh it's out and then no one talks about it anymore <laughs> um you know there's the wild arms one that's in development right now there's um it's just a bunch but like i feel like the audience that these callback gacha games are trying to tap into are specifically the people who aren't really wanting the gacha games in the first place. Yeah, I, f- I feel like really with like Fate, um, it's tying more into the anime crowd more so than the hardcore gaming crowd specifically. I mean, I'm, obviously there's a great deal of crossover there, but like the people who play fate grand order are people who saying oh cool a fate game i want to play this they're not people who are going oh cool another entry in fantasy star let me pick this up and then compare it to all my memories of fantasy star like they, they they're easier for them to exist as their own entities grand blue especially because it's its own property yeah absolutely i think fate as well the fact that the very concept of fate is basically a gacha game helps as well because it, it, when you're trying to shoehorn something in with the gacha concept it, it often feels very forced like the, mm-hmm. the, a lot of the final fantasy ones are good but it, it feels very forced the way it's getting the other characters and stuff in there um whereas the, the, i mean the very concept of fate the way that that universe works is that you summon something and you don't know what you're going to get so it's it's to do with the the type of person you are and such like so i mean that that fits ideally with the gacha concept so people Mm -hmm. who are already into fate are already into that idea of sort of drawing stuff randomly and seeing what you get i mean obviously from there they they get into the metagame side of things and stuff as well but it's yeah it's a better fit for the concept i think um along the along the same lines i don't want to get too hung up on mobile games but there's also a new shin megami tensei mobile game as well that launched globally recently uh, Shin Megami Tensei Liberation D Cross 2 or DX2 however you pronounce it um, that launched globally in English for both iOS and Android um, 
visually looks pretty good it's got a pretty authentic sort of mega 10 look about it uh he uses the press turn battle system like in uh, persona um so lots of uh, sort of exploiting weaknesses and that sort of thing um the uh reviews have been mixed so far judging from what i've seen on google play the the draw rate on the gacha is apparently atrocious which is nothing unusual these days but some are a lot more generous than others fake grand order is notoriously bad for example and grand blue is pretty generous um but it sounds like the the mega 10 one is uh airing on the side of not terribly generous so anyway is this the one with the, the like the augmented reality kind of thing like pokemon go or was that a different shin mega 10 no i think that's something game. different this is this is yeah. this is a more traditional uh mega 10 style game so it's it's got like dungeons it's got a story and that kind of thing so oh, okay it, it, it just happens to be a gacha game um but it's yeah it's got a it's standard uh mega 10 combat system and demon negotiation and stuff so i mean it sounds potentially quite good but again if you're not into that style of mobile games then you're not going to be into that either so well you know like i was saying with um with the prior when i was just saying about um mobile games being developed out of well-known franchises like i'm i'm a huge um shin, Meg shin megami tensei fan like prefer classic shin megami tensei to persona like yeah. i love i love these games if i want to play shin megami tensei and i want to play it on the go i'm going to get that new version of um strange journey that came out of 3ds or i'm going to yep. Or I'm going to boot up uh, my copy of Apocalypse 4 on the 3DS and go for a evil playthrough. Like, I'm yeah. not going to play a mobile game. I'm going to play the proper, well-established, fully-featured games. Yeah. I, this, this is the thing. It's like I often think about um, starting up playing something like Grand Blue or, or Fake Grand Order on my lunch break at work. But then I've got all the Dragon Quests on DS. And so I just think, well, I could play that or i could play dragon quest which we'll talk a bit mm -hmm. about later and i'm sure you're looking forward to that but um yeah and I, I there's not enough appeal in there in the mobile games for me personally i know it's different for some people but there's sure. not enough appeal there personally for me to want to play those in preference to something else and as as i spoke about with joe on a gacha podcast a, a few weeks back there there is these games are getting complicated enough now that they are basically MMOs, so they they are time sinks as well as money sinks. So mm -hmm. if you if you want to make good progress in them or do stuff in the um, in the special events that come up or take part in the multiplayer raids in Grand Blue and that sort of thing, then yeah, you need to put some fairly significant time into these games. And there's other stuff I'd rather be doing, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's what it boils down to for me too. It's not like I don't respect a lot of these games and understand what they're going for, mm. but it's just every single time i try to play one of them i find myself thinking to myself well i'm just playing an airsots version of, of exp an experience i can have elsewhere but better yeah yeah you know um i i really tried to engage in good faith with um the fire emblem yeah the mobile fire emblem but the whole time i was like why am i fussing with these menus why am i playing this when i could just reach into my collection and play any of the many fire emblems i bought yeah true and to, to, just to clarify for those listening, this is this is not hating on free to play or the concept of gacha or anything like that. This is no. because you, you're very unlikely to run into an actual paywall these days, which is sort of the bigger criticism I would have had of free to play games maybe five or ten years ago or so. But um, yeah, it, it 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 is pretty much just the time investment required these days, which is it's, it's why I'm not playing Final Fantasy XIV anymore, as well as the community fat game sucking now as well. But um, 
yeah it, i would rather spend my time playing a broader variety of games rather than dedicating my time to being the best at uh, at one thing i think yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i would when i say i quote hate on mobile games and quote and gotcha um it's the same way i hate on quote unquote anything like uh I'm not disparaging the people who play it. I'm not no, saying same, I'm not same. saying it doesn't have its place in the marketplace. I'm just saying it's not for me, and I'm explaining the reasons it's not for me. Yeah, like by right. all, by all means, enjoy your gotcha games. I'm just saying that the experience doesn't fit for me. Yeah. And anyway, even if you're not playing the game, you can always enjoy the fan art and the porn. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, give us a positive story. <laughs> uh, let's see. Positive story. Uh, well, in the previous episode we did, I talked about how the Australian ratings boards had revealed some information that we might be getting Taiko no the newest Taiko no Tatsujin games in the West. Ah, yes. Um, that has since been happily confirmed. Excellent. So um, the West is getting two different Taiko no Tatsujin games. Uh, Taiko no Tatsujin Drum Sessions, which is the PS4 game, and Taiko no Tatsujin Drum and Fun for the Nintendo Switch. So uh, you'll get your choice of either game. Um, they're actually different games. They're not ports, so each has some different features. Um, the, P, um, the PS4 version has some really interesting um, crossover tracks. Mm. With some other um, with some other uh, series, so like for anime fans, there's Attack on Titan, Dragon Ball, and One Piece themes in there. Yeah, um, really the cool. Switch stuff. one's got some Nintendo themes as well, hasn't it? I, I seem to remember from the trailer. Yeah, I believe like so. Jump Up Superstar and such like. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And uh, what's really interesting to me too is the Switch version. Um, they've actually released some videos on it. It has a really unique control scheme using the motion control and the Joy Cons to replicate the Taiko drum. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons I've never um, played, I haven't played Taiko no Tatsujin in years, is because my wife's got a real problem with a uh, repetitive noise. <laughs> so like, so like the sound of me ticka 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 on the on that giant on that stupid plastic drum um, would would drive her up the wall. So I'm really excited for the potential to play it on the Switch, and it'll be relatively silent, um, won't annoy anybody else but myself. Mm. So. Uh, uh, but for those of you who want the drum, uh, Hori, um, the fine third-party accessory manufacturer, does make an officially, um, you know, collaborated with Namco Bandai built drum for the Switch as well. So that option is available for you. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a fan of music games, but Taiko no Tatsujin is a, a series that I've never really come into contact with previously. I've I've seen screenshots and stuff of it, but I've I've never actually played one of them. So yeah, definitely interested to try this one out. It's a lot of fun. It's totally unlike anything else out there. Excellent. All right, moving on. Um, RPG Maker MV is launching in November in Japan, so that's on November the 15th, um, and uh, it is confirmed to be launching for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Switch. Uh, the Xbox One version will be digital only, um, and there will be cross-play compatibility between the Xbox One version and the Switch version. So uh, we talked a bit about um, how they might handle this um, a couple of episodes back, and it mm -hmm. seems they are, they are doing the same kind of thing. They're releasing a... Um, a separate free RPG Maker player app 
for both consoles uh, oh, and, okay. then you, you, and then you sort of upload your project to a central server somewhere and both the xbox one and the switch will be able to pull from the same pool of creations uh, and the ps4 will just be off doing and it's uh, its own thing and it's a little corner because sony doesn't like to play nice with other people apparently so um so that's how that's going to work there's, uh, there's not much new to say about the actual um software itself but uh, yeah that is confirmed to be out before the end of the year in japan and then it's, it's following news. Following early next year from uh, Nisa um, in the West, I believe. So, I'm very interested in the side scroller action game maker that they're releasing. Oh yes, the, the same company is making. I feel like that's got some potential for something I might actually be able to engage with. Yeah, definitely. The um, they did actually release a game, uh, a game, a, a, a piece of software a while back called uh, Indie Game Maker, but it's one that you never hear anything about. Um, so I don't know if it was just not good or just people hadn't heard of it before, but uh, this, yeah, that's supposed to be a spiritual successor to that, I believe. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, how well that comes along. Yeah, that's but definitely yeah. got more intersection with the type of games I'd be interested in make, isn't making. As much as I love RPGs, I don't particularly want to spend my time writing one. But yeah. I do. But I would like to make like a Castlevania style game or a Mega Man style game with like you know crazy bosses and stuff. So yeah, definitely. All right, what else you got for us? Uh, let's see here. Uh, just a little thing. Um, for those of you who enjoyed the Castlevania animated series on Netflix, uh, Viz Video has confirmed that they are going to be releasing it for home. Uh, so you will be able to own it physically. So I'm very excited about that because oh, I nice, really, yeah. really enjoyed that. And I'm excited for the new season in October. Um, but yes, you will be able to own... Uh, the first season of Castlevania on uh, DVD and Blu-ray and your format of choice. So oh, that's good. I, I, I'm glad that turned out to be good because there was yeah so much potential for it to be absolutely terrible. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it came out well. I'm glad people enjoyed it, and I'm glad it was successful enough for them to do this as well. So yeah, thumbs up for that. It's quite it's quite good. <laughs> I'm I'm really excited. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. Another piece of, uh, well, I don't know if this is news as such, but there are cheat codes in Sonic Mania Plus, if you didn't know. Old school cheat codes. When was the last time you played a game with one of those? It's been a long time. Yeah, exactly. So, and uh, rather enjoyably, uh, Sonic Mania Plus's cheat code is done in the same way as the Sonic 2 cheats. So you go into the sound select menu um, and you do certain combinations of sound tests and you get various... Uh, race effects so you can change all animals into squirrels you can get all the emeralds you can get infinite continues you could force encore mode uh, there is an unknown code apparently I don't know what that <laughs> does <laughs> um there's a mode where you can fly like supersonic in normal levels um and you can disable the music for supersonic so there you go cheat codes um all right anything else uh yeah um I haven't mentioned this on any of the earlier episodes because it happened earlier in the year before we started recording these, but um, uh, I'm a huge fan of CyberConnect 2. Mm -hmm. um, very specifically, I'm a fan of CyberConnect 2's Little Tail Bronx series, uh, Tail Concerto and um, Salada Robo. And um, they have released a new update about what they're calling their Trilogy of Vengeance series, which is a trilogy of smaller um, games that they're planning on releasing in 2019. Um, one of which, Fugue of the Battlefield, is a entry in the Little Tail Bronx series. Um, also including 
uh, Tokyo Ogre Gate, which is kind of like a like a ninja style action running game, and Cecile, which is kind of a gothic Lolita. Uh, 2.5D side-scroller. Um, they've been working on these games for a little while and kind of releasing snippets of news and art and information, but the biggest piece of information to come out recently, along with some new trailers, is that they are planned for a simultaneous global release, including the West. So we hadn't actually heard uh, confirmation up to that point that we were definitely going to get these games in the West. Um, no confirmation yet physical or digital only or what have you um, in the West they have said that Japan is going to be getting physical copies of them so fingers crossed um, but these are going to be three really neat games CyberConnect 2 makes really cool stuff cool yeah interested to check those out uh, yeah again I, that, that series is not one that I'm familiar with I'm not sure if, if some of them made it to Europe or not so um mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a one that I'm not familiar with, but I I have always heard good things about them. So. It's uh it's hard to name like a cozier feel more feel good kind of series than the Little Tail Bronx games. They're just cute and friendly and also kind of tragic a lot, but <laughs> it's 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 a they're a really <laughs> interesting experience. Excellent. All right. Um Oh, another one I uh, just noticed. Xenoblade Chronicles 2 has got a 1.51 update now. Um, it's got some new features again. So there's a new rare blade in there, Crossette. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, she is a healer with a uh, bitball weapon. Um, new round of DLC quests via the expansion pass. There's a custom difficulty mode now. So you can uh, set... Uh, there's 10 different parameters you can adjust to set your own custom difficulty level so it affects things like uh, maximum hit points of enemies attack power rate of which the party rate party gauge gains and that sort of thing um uh, what else you can change the battle music if you have shulk or fiora in your party um so you can change it to uh you will know our names from the original Xenoblade. that's exciting yeah um yeah, and some other some other little tweaks and things there. So yeah, if you're still playing Zelda Blade, or if you feel like revisiting it, then again, there's a a few more changes in there. So I would like to go and do a, a new game plus on that at some point because the some of the things they've added to it sound really fun, and the the challenge yeah. mode especially sounds like a lot of fun. But uh, I'll probably wait until after the um, the uh, standalone side story is out, and then and then revisit it. I think. Yes, yes, and for those of you who. Um, like me or bears about DLC um, if you buy the physical version of the Torna expansion standalone um, it does come with a, uh, a download code for the season pass so if you didn't buy the season pass um, it's a inexpensive way to get your hands on it while physically owning the Torna DLC so I mean it's not the ideal solution because it's not the season pass content printed on physical yeah. media but but at least it's a way to get that and the new standalone expansion together at a, at a fair price yeah i'm quite impressed with nintendo for doing this because i mean they didn't have to do this at all but putting out a physical version of this new story content is really cool but um for some of their other games as well they've been doing things like uh printable new inlays for the games so yes. for example with uh, splatoon 2's octo expansion they did a printable new inlay for splatoon 2 so if you wanted to update your game your copy of the game with a special inlay for the Octo expansion, you can do that now. And that's, yeah, I, I feel that's Nintendo acknowledging that there are people out there who want 
physical versions of these things. I mean, it's not quite giving us exactly what we want, like you've just described, but it, it is a step in the right direction, I think. It is at least acknowledgement that the demand is there. It's better than nothing. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, just that uh, God Wars 2 has been announced for the PS4 Switch and, interestingly enough, still Vita, so that's yep. cool. Um, I have not played the original God Wars yet because I'm waiting for the complete edition that's coming out this fall, but um, yes. I've heard some good things. It's a, uh, For those who are unfamiliar, it's a strategy RPG series um, with job classes, kind of in the classic Final Fantasy Tactics mold, but it's set in like a pre-Sengoku era mythological japan so it deals with a lot of like the classic like shinto origin myths and like characters from japanese mythology and folklore um but in a nice square based uh strategy rpg so very excited to check the original out and apparently it was successful enough for katakawa to make a second one so yeah. great because i love grid-based strategy games hmm yeah, I'm, I'm up for this as well. Again, like you, I haven't played the the original one because I'm waiting for this um, this definitive version. But uh, yeah, great to hear that it's it's been a success. So it's it right. for me. All right, great stuff. Okay, I think that's uh, that's plenty to talk about for the minute. So we will take a short break here, and then we will come back in just a moment and talk about what we've been playing recently. So we'll see you in just a moment. Dragon, grant me your power. Welcome back. As usual for our second segment, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about what we've been playing recently. So, Chris, if you'd like to kick us off. Uh, I haven't had too much time to play stuff recently, but I did take some time two weeks ago to give Shining Resonance Refrain a try. Mm. Um, I figured everyone else in the universe was going guns blazing into Octopath Traveler, so I would play the thing that nobody else was interested in playing slash... <laughs> nobody else was liking so uh i'm getting started on shining resonance um for those of you who are unfamiliar with shining resonance and are a nerd for development houses like me um, you may not be aware that shining resonance was developed by media vision which is the wild arms guys um so for many years since back on the original and the ps3 i've been waiting to get my hands on this game because i pretty much buy anything media vision touches um, so now is a chance for us in the West to get our hands on it several years later. It's a, basically a long-lost media vision game, and I'm mm. enjoying it very much. Um, it's really cozy, it's really kind of good-natured and cute. Um, beautiful character artwork from uh, Tony Taka, who's quite famous for his character work. Um, it's basically kind of, I almost want to call it a Tales-like 
in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. The structure of the game is very similar to uh, Tales of Chilia in that it's not an open world. It's um, You have a world map screen, but... Um, every node you go into generates a reasonably large field that you get to explore. It kind okay. of has it kind of has that like proto MMO feel, where like MMOs had that little had like little fields that were linked with load screens in between. Okay, cool. Um, but the combat is cool because it's kind of the classic uh, symbol encounter, as they call it these days. So you don't actually go into a separate screen. It um, what happens is you encounter the enemies and then it kind of throws a force field up around the, a field of battle and it just takes place yep. right on the map you're on, which is cool because when they started doing that in the that first Tales game for PS4, everyone was like, "Wow, this is such an innovation!" But um, <laughs> but like Shining Resonance had done that years before. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have been ragging on the combat, um, saying that like the timing doesn't feel right. Um, or that the action doesn't, you know, feel satisfying enough, but, um, I haven't had that problem because I've been engaging with the combat, um, rhythmically, not engaging with it as an action game. I think yeah. a lot of people are making the mistake of approaching the game, expecting it to feel like a Tales game combat-wise, which you can kind of usually just button mash your way to victory if you're not playing, like, hard mode. And, um, it's important to remember that, um the thematic uh, thing that ties Shining Resonance Refrain together is music. Like, the game is about music. The characters' uh, weapons are also instruments. So, like, if you approach the combat like you would approach a rhythm game, and, and you actually have to time your combos, like, very specifically based on the rhythm of each character, then you can pull off, like, really neat combos and stuff. So, I don't know oh, that if... That sounds cool. Yeah, I don't know if people who have been having trouble with the combat have been failing at it because they've just been trying to, like, mash their way through combos and, and not been engaging with it on its own terms, but um, I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I... I like you say i've i've had some some mixed reports about this but uh it's good that you've been enjoying it although interestingly this is one of those games where people who seem to have reacted a bit more negatively to it don't seem to have very concrete examples of what they don't like about it they it's one of those games where people just say well, it's all right but it has issues you know yeah. what i mean mm -hmm. and, it's, and, it do and it does it does have yeah. issues but, but I mean, I think I think the thing that's important to remember with this is, as you said at the beginning, this this is this is not a brand new game. Despite it being no. a new release over here, this is not a brand new game by any means. So there are going to be some decisions in it that are a bit dated. It, it is from a previous generation console, so there are going to be some aspects of it that have improved in games since then. Um, and yeah, I'm not saying that this to try and make excuses or anything like that but i think it's it's important to try and judge it on its own merits rather than necessarily comparing it directly to other stuff well like any piece of popular culture um be it a game a film a television show a music album like you always have to consider um the period in which it was created and the social atmosphere in which it was created and the constraints of technology in which it was created when you're evaluating it Mm, you you can't hold it up against a modern, say, a modern Tales game and expect it to feel and act the same way. A lot yeah. of these quote-unquote quality-of-life improvements that we have these days in our RPGs were still just being refined during the PS3 age when Shining Resonance came out. Yeah. So, 
but it's a cool example of what it is. I'm really enjoying it. There's lots of crafting to do. There's optional subquests if you want to grind and build better stuff. There's, it very much feels like a piece of that um, late PS2, early PS3 era where they were like, we want to make RPGs that feel a little bit like MMOs. Yeah. Which I enjoy because I like a lot of the mechanics of MMOs, but I don't actually like playing them because of the time sync stuff we talked about mm -hmm. earlier and the social aspects. So when games have kind of these large explorable fields, materials to collect, crafting to do, subquests to grind through, I really enjoy that type of structure in my games separate from the online components. Oh, good. Sounds, sounds really good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, uh, this is a game I do very much want to pick up at some point, but I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, and there is a dating sim element. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's cute cute waifus to romance. There's a sassy princess and a demure um, shrine maiden and uh, a mage who I have not met yet, but I think she's probably pretty absent-minded, judging from the, the videos <laughs> I've seen. So... Lots of lots of cool characters, and it's like I said, it's goofy because of the musical theme. So it's a lot of fun. Like, oh, that guy's staff is also an electric guitar. So like when he does <laughs> when he does his special moves, like he'll like jam on the guitar, and like like when everyone is quote unquote in resonance in battle, you can like bust out into like everyone does a performance, and it like buffs your characters. So it's some really really cool stuff. It's corny. It's an you know anime corny, but it's it's yeah. really fun. And if you just kind of stop being snarky about everything and have fun with it it's a really cute game and i'm really yeah definitely it. i really like the sound of the way that it's incorporated its its thematic elements into the mechanics that's that's always something i'm a big fan of when they do it right um and it's music is an ideal fit for that sort of thing as well um i had I haven't really talked much about uh omega quintet since i played it since i i played it before i really started writing things hardcore on Moe Gamer, but uh, Omega Quintet handled that really interestingly because it took the approach, it, it didn't ta really take a sort of rhythmic approach to combat, but it really emphasised the aspect of performance. So the whole concept of Omega Quintet was it was a post-apocalyptic dystopian future where there was just a tiny pocket of humans surviving against this force of monsters that were closing in on them. And all of the hope for the people was coming from this this group of idols who you assemble throughout the course of the game um and so in order to be successful in combat you have to kind of amp everybody up basically by being exciting and so you can just sort of use your basic normal attacks and so on but the the flashier you are in combat the more damage you'll do you'll uh, sort of unlock new battle themes that are going as as the the combat is progressing and so on and yeah you get significant rewards for showmanship in that game and i thought that was a really nice use of, uh, of blending mechanics and theme as well so like it's nice to, yeah so it's nice to hear that um that shiny resonance is doing something similar but in a, a through through different execution I, I i really enjoy sort of rhythmic combat so that's one of the reasons i really like the uh the shadow hearts games as well mm, which okay. i'm sure we'll mention later but uh yeah there's a significant rhythmic aspect to those as well all right, anything else you want to say on Shiny Resonance? No, I think that's it. Lovely stuff. All right, I will mention a thing that I know you'll be excited to hear about, which is Dragon Quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, just a bit of background. Dragon Quest is a series that I have not engaged with at all until recently. Uh, it's a series I've been aware of, but I have never touched it at all basically part of the reason for that is that we just didn't get any of them here in europe until dragon quest 8 on the ps2 oh wow so 
so we didn't get any of the dragon warriors at all um so dragon quest 8 was the first one um it's i'm not entirely sure why i always passed it up uh when i saw it on ps2 because I, I remember seeing it when it was new and thinking oh that looks quite interesting but never actually picking it up and trying it which i kind of regret now because uh, i've been playing uh, dragon quest chapters of the chosen which is dragon quest 4 on the nintendo ds and oh i love it <laughs> yeah i'm so glad you finally dove in and i'm so glad you're enjoying it it's just nothing nothing is like dragon quest because everything else is like dragon quest. <laughs> you, you, you know what i mean like <laughs> dragon quest is the seed from which blooms so much that's important to us so it's it's so important to connect with it to really grasp that yeah absolutely i mean i i mentioned this in my initial articles on them over on my game but one of the reasons i think i have been so resistant to it previously is the idea that whenever i saw a review of a dragon quest game it was always described as a very traditional rpg as if that was a negative thing mm -hmm. and that at the time i read those reviews that was always a bit off-putting so it was it was sort of the time when everyone was saying oh we knew always need innovation in games we always need new things we always need exciting things and sort of having this this jrpg series that is just sort of quietly pootling along doing what it's always been doing it it, it wasn't sort of uh really sold to me at the time but having revisited it now you know a traditional rpg is pretty great <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, it's 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 nice to have something that you can just engage with. You know immediately how it's going to work. You understand these things, and there's also some interesting elements in there that you you actually don't see in modern RPGs that are trying to do things a little bit differently. Um, just little things like uh, items of cursed equipment. That's not something you see outside of roguelikes these days. Um, mm. But in Dragon Quest IV, there's several items of cursed equipment that maybe have massive attack power, but they do something incredibly unpleasant to you in the process as well. So there's like a hammer that is really powerful but it drops your agility to zero or there's a suit of armor that is very strong in defense but after a couple of turns it will kill you <laughs> so uh, dragon quest specifically has always had a real um, fixation on items yeah um, I, I know it's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Because like items are ubiquitous in RPGs, but like the attention Dragon Quest pays to like items, their functionality, even sometimes their relevance in the story, is always been kind of a, an underpinning vein running through the series. Um, it's one of the things that made um, when Eight came along and introduced its crafting system, and everything was like lovingly created with like beautiful. Uh, individual art for every single item um it's just their love and attention to items and their functionality throughout the series has always been a defining feature of the series uh, to the point where you can engage with them in battle too i know in the, in the earlier dragon quest games what you can and cannot do with items in battle is a little different from other games that uh, you can kind of sometimes some of them allow you to swap equipment in battle which is yeah. kind of abnormal for rpgs like there's a huge emphasis on that yeah, very much. And I mean, Dragon Quest Four obviously is one of the earlier ones. It was uh, sort of a late era NES game. Um, but the, I mean, it was obviously very ambitious for the time, and the DS version is just sort of built on that. But I mean, that that emphasis on items very much shines through in this. So sort of getting a new item of equipment feels significant in this. It's not just a case of you got to the next town, so now go and buy all the weapons and armor and stuff that are there, so you have slightly better stats. So every time you 
every time you get to upgrade your equipment it feels like a significant moment because the game is tuned in such a way that equipment upgrades aren't necessarily very easy to come by so they're they're priced in the shops that you often have to sort of prioritize a bit in terms yeah. of which which one you're going to get first so which character is going to get the good sword or the good weapon or whatever first of all and then there are certain characters who will go through most of the game using the same equipment because of the way that their stats build. So, for example, the character Alina in, uh, in Dragon Quest IV, who uh, is a, a fist fighter, she goes through pretty much the whole game using this same pair of iron claws that you get in her prologue chapter. And it's not until the post-game that you get an upgrade for that. And so that is a huge moment for her because she suddenly... she Her strength has been growing enormously faster than the rest of the party by this point. So for her to suddenly get a new item of equipment that buffs her strength up even further is... Yeah, that, that's huge for that. And the other cool thing in Dragon Quest IV with regard to items is the, the character Tornico. Or however you pronounce it. So every item in the game, whether it's a little consumable item or a piece of equipment or something, you can get Tornico to appraise it. And that gives gives you a little speech from him about what the item is, what he thinks it's for, who can equip it, what it's worth, and that kind of thing. And there's some generally hilarious little monologues in there from him based on these items. So if if you take things like sort of what is apparently Dragon Quest staple equipment, so pairs of fishnet stockings and pink leotards and stuff, if you get him <laughs> to examine those, he, he initially gets all embarrassed and then threatens to put them on if you keep asking him who can equip them. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, humor is the other kind of defining feature of Dragon Quest. Um, it doesn't take itself seriously. It has a lot of, you know, it always wants to have fun and it always wants you to be having fun when you play it. The, the, everything from the jokes to the decision to regionalize the characters' accents, uh, just like everything about it, especially in the Western versions, is so geared toward just a delightful, almost like a '80s gag anime feel. Yeah. Like feel, it, it's it's just always having fun. The, you know, the so many of the traditional enemies are puns and have pun names. Yes. Um, yes. I, I actually had read an article a couple days ago with some of the influential people who made the most worked on the most recent Dragon Quest, Dragon Quest XI, um, talking about how like some players had written to them saying about how they felt bad beating up some of the monsters because they're just so <laughs> so cute and friendly looking and um they had remarked that like that's why they never use the language in the games that you killed the monster because yeah. they have they always conceived of it in dragon quest that you just rough the monster up a little bit to teach it a lesson and it ran away <laughs> like you don't you're not actually killing the monsters in dragon quest which i thought was really kind of a cute way to approach thinking about it because sometimes you do feel bad for wailing on a dragon quest monster yeah definitely yeah i, I do love the monster names and uh, i'm sure part of part of these the monster names i've been encountering is a product of the localization process but yeah in in sort of the last couple of dungeons in dragon quest 4 you come across uh, you come across these ghost enemies called floater copiers who just clone your party <laughs> yeah and, that's and, great and, and so you just get this lovely pixel art of these characters that you, because the battles unfold for first person you just haven't really seen them by this point and so, oh, so okay. suddenly su suddenly seeing like your protagonist and the other party members there standing in front of you that's really cool but i mean just i mean they're called floater copiers yeah it's great there's a million of them um i always love the um 
the Dragon Quest Monsters um, offset series, which is basically like Dragon Quest does Pokemon, because yeah. you get to actually collect and train the different monsters. So mm-hmm. like, you know, there's a there's a like a dog monster that fights with like a, a flail and chain, and they're called Chain Eyes, which which I really <laughs> like. Just uh, you know the the dinosaurs with axes that are Haxorus's. Yeah. Like just I love them so much. I like the ones that that feel like they are obviously monsters trying to make themselves sound threatening and getting it wrong. So, mm. for example, in, Dra- in Dragon Quest Four, there's an enemy called a Terminator. So it's not a Terminator; it's a Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like you got that wrong, didn't you? But uh, yeah. yeah, it just shows up, and you're like, yeah, okay. So, yeah. I mean, anyway, it's um, at the time of recording, I've uh, I've beaten the main story of that. So I'm on the post-game chapter of that now, which was added newly in the original PlayStation version and then tweaked a bit for the DS version. So I'm working my way through the bonus dungeon in that, which is uh, sort of massive, much bigger than the, any of the dungeons in the main game. Uh, and then I think there's another boss at the end of that. Um, and after that, I'll be moving on to uh, five Ah, uh, so you are going to keep plowing through? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been enjoying 4 enough, and it's uh, it's a, a game that I can play on my lunch at work easily because it's, although it's it's got a good story and characterization and stuff, it's not heavy on that side of things. So sure. you, you never you never get bogged down in a cutscene in Dragon Quest. Like everything is very snappy and to the point. So there's there's no feeling that sort of you you have to sit down for a long time and play it just in case there's a long cutscene pretty much all of your time you're playing in there you're you're doing stuff i mean i'm not sure if that's still true for the later versions of the series but uh, certainly these early ones that I, i've been playing are, uh, are along those lines anyway it certainly was true in eight and nine um yeah i don't know how things are going to be in 11 um but eight eight still kind of maintains some of that sna- snappiness like there is cutscenes in eight but it's very much like all right then we've beaten this dungeon where's the next town oh let's head on to the next town and like that's the kind of the extent of the cutscenes they're like the, <laughs> like the big bad villain comes sets the palace on fire the cutscenes 45 minutes you know 45 seconds long yeah like it's it's all very snappy because dragon quest has always emphasized gameplay yeah now now that i think about it um, thinking back to when Dragon Quest VIII was first released, I, I think that was one of the reasons that some people criticised it a bit because it basically wasn't doing what Final Fantasy did. Oh, sure, yeah, because and, um, Dragon Quest are silent protagonist games; like it's meant to be your adventure. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think one th- one thing that did strike me as I was playing four just to just to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier about it being a, a humorous cozy sort of game as well and yeah it, it very much feels like um sort of the inverse of what final fantasy is doing so final, final fantasy is very much heavy on the melodrama side of things and then it has occasional moments of humor and stuff whereas dragon quest feels like it's the other way around dragon quest isn't completely devoid of serious moments and bad things happening and tragedy and whatnot but those things are very much in the minority the, the majority of your adventure is sort of happy fun times colorful monsters going on an adventure that sort of thing and then occasionally something really bad happens whereas final fantasy is like i mean it varies from installment to installment but it, it feels very much like the other way around if you know what i mean yeah well there hasn't been a fun final fantasy since nine <laughs> you know it's yeah. all been it's all been serious serious business since then yeah that's true 
Okay, well, I won't rant on that further for the minute, but I'm sure there'll be more Dragon Quest in the coming weeks. So uh, Yeah, I'm excited for you to get your hands on five, because the whole point of five is waifus. Like, like <laughs> five <five's laughs> subtitles, Hand of the Heavenly Bride, and the whole idea yeah. is that it's... Uh, throughout the game, you've got... Um, three two girls to choose from in the original um and then there's a special third that was added for the newer version um so like which ones you fate which one of the girls you favor kind of also affects the later segments of the game like who you have a child with what your family is like so it's it's almost got a bit of a what we've come to associate with harvest moon in there in there it's it's kind of yeah. cool Oh, that's cool. I'm looking forward to that. So, yeah, like I say, I'll probably move straight onto that when I've uh, finished with uh, with Four's post game. So, okay. Um, have you had time to play anything else recently at all? Uh, just Sonic Mania. Yeah. Um, which is I don't know. It's even like hard to talk about. Uh, so much has been said about it already, but it's it's incredible. Um, the main designer Christian Whitehead, I really believe, needs to be elevated to some kind of like level of sainthood. Like what he's done, <laughs> what he's done for Sonic over the years and now finally with sonic mania it's just unbelievable i mean i know you're you weren't a sega kid so like your mileage would vary with sonic mania but like to play sonic mania especially when you reach one of the new levels because uh for those who haven't engaged with sonic mania yet the whole idea of it is it is a mixture of classic levels pulled from sonic one through sonic and knuckles um that have been remixed, sometimes fused with other levels, uh, other classic levels in unique ways. So, like, one of Sonic's big things is um, motion-related stage gimmicks. It's like different kinds of springs and flippers and spring pads and accelerators and um, switches and all, just all kinds of gimmicks. Anything you can think of, seesaws and trapezes. So, one level may have some of the motion gimmicks from a different level that you remember, but they've melded them together. So cool. it's a combination of these classic stages that have been reinvented in new ways with some slight new technology tweaks in them to make them run smoother and look better. But then interspersed like every two stages or so, there's a brand new stage. But when I say brand new stage, I mean brand new 16-bit stage. So, so like when you get to the f to the first one of these, I felt like the classic like Nintendo sixty four YouTube kid. I was just, <laughs> it's just like to be presented in twenty eighteen with a brand new Sonic level that feels like an old Sonic level is I can't even describe the feeling because I was a Sega kid. So like I grew up play every Saturday morning, like. There was a time in my life where I probably beat Sonic 2 every Saturday morning for like a year and a half. <laughs> you you know, it's just, I love Sonic. So, like, the love letter that this game is, you can't even describe it fully and do it justice. Yeah. Well, along those lines, I mean, the next month on Mario Gamer, I'm devoting to Sonic to sort of coincide with the recent release of Sonic Mania. So, I've been going back and playing a bunch of the old Sonic games, including... Uh, the 2D ones and um, some of the more weird ones from recently as well. So I, I'll leave the discussion of the weirder ones to a later time because there's there's plenty to talk about with just those ones. I've been playing mm -hmm. a bit of Sonic and Sonic and the Secret Rings, but I'll save that for another day. Um, but I, yeah, I did want to talk a bit about the the 2D ones I've been playing recently. So just today, for example, I've been playing a bit of both Sonic CD and Sonic 3. Oh, okay, and, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's been really interesting to revisit those, and it's also 
a little bit frustrating that up until probably the HD era, uh, we in PAL territories were absolutely screwed with Sonic games. I hadn't realised quite how much. I never, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, most people most people are pretty familiar with uh, Sonic 1 being way slower than the NTSC versions. Um, but I, I had always thought they had fixed that for Sonic 2 and Sonic 3. But comparing the... Um, the, the ports on the PS2 versions of the Sonic Mega Collection and the Sonic Gems Collection to um, the Xbox 360 versions. So there's, there's the Xbox Live Arcade version of Sonic CD, which I downloaded today, and the uh, the version of Sonic 3 on the Sega Mega Drive, uh, whatever they called that particular pack on the Xbox 360. The difference oh, Sonic's, just... Mega Col- yeah. Sonic's Genesis Collection or whatever. Yeah, they, they called it something different over here, but yeah, that mm. one. Um, yeah, the difference is just phenomenal because the the 50 hertz PAL versions they are so sluggish <laughs> to, yeah. to such a degree that they are actively frustrating and quite annoying to play. Whereas you, you play them at the speed they were intended at, and they are a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I I've been enjoying them a lot more since I switched to playing these slightly newer ports of them. Um, but yeah, it's just a real shame that PAL players have uh, kind of been screwed out of that experience up until now yeah it's really unfor- it's, it's bizarre when technical limitations like that prevent you from experiencing something the way it's been meant to be experienced yeah and i mean so, I, i've been familiar with the concept for a long time because i remember reading the official nintendo magazine back in the day and things like they they had leaderboards for things like mario kart times and wave race times and such like and they always had to have separate um leaderboards for pal and ntsc versions that people were playing on so I was always familiar with the concept and why it happened and so on, but I, I think Sonic games are just the most obvious example of that actually affecting the way a game play, uh, the way mm. a game plays to such a significant degree, and it's uh, yeah, it's been been quite eye opening. But at least we at least we can enjoy them as intended now. So yeah, that's good. News. So that's good. Also, Sonic Three is fucking hard. No one told me. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you get to Sonic and Knuckles? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I am not used to Sonic games putting up a fight, but like Sonic 3 has been kicking my ass all morning. and it's where, been are you, getting... where are you meeting resistance? Um, zone, the third zone at the minute, so the marble, whatever it's called. Um, so the, the second zone gave me a bit of resistance as well, with the, the second stage of that where the wall is yeah. trying to crush you right at the start of it. Yeah, it's like that, that, that took a lot of attempts and a lot of swearing. Um, and then, yeah, this this next one, I, I I can see what to do, but I just keep ballsing it up at the end of it, basically. But yeah, it, it, I'm not used to a Sonic game putting up this much of a fight, and, and I like it. <laughs> you'll you'll enjoy Sonic Mania then, because one of the remix stages is Hydro City. Oh no! And the final Robotnik boss at the end of Act Two of Hydro City remixes that crushing wall, moving crushing wall, oh, and mixes it. So you have to fight Robotnik while he's chasing you with like w- with the moving stage gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really hard boss fight. Oh well, I've got that to look forward to then. Yeah, um, I just wanted to bring up the, uh, I, I've mentioned it already, but the, the Xbox 360 version of Sonic CD is amazing, if you haven't played it. Yep, Christian Whitehead yeah, remixed exactly. that whole game and yeah. made it something beautiful. Yeah, it is. Added, added the spin dash from Sonic 2, which wasn't part of the original game. I can't even imagine playing it without it anymore. Yeah, 
No, it's an absolutely fantastic port. So it's been properly expanded to widescreen, so it's not stretched, but it keeps the original sort of um, very sharp pixels in there. Uh, it's got the choice of the Japanese and the North American soundtracks. It's beautifully responsive. It looks great, plays great. So, yeah, if you want to play Sonic CD, try and grab that version before you can't download things on Xbox 360 anymore, for sure. Uh, you can get that on Steam, too. Oh, it's can the you? same version. Is it the same yeah, version? Just, oh. Yeah, same version. Okay, cool. Well, good to know. It was it was three pounds on Xbox, so I thought, yeah, you know, I'll I'll give that a go. And uh, no. yeah, I'm definitely not going back to the PS2 version now. <sighs> anyway, yeah, I don't think the PS2 version because the PS2 version is just the original straight Sega CD port, so it doesn't have the enhanced. It's got the enhanced video sequences, so it's got the improved intro and ending sequences. But other than that, okay. it, it doesn't have any any changes to the actual gameplay of it. Um. And obviously it has the the PAL problem in that because there's no 60 hertz mode in that one. So, uh, okay, yeah, which is good. which is a bit of a shame because the, the PS2 was very inconsistent with whether or not people would bother to put a 60 hertz mode in. Um, whereas Sega, Sega in particular were always very good with it on the Dreamcast, and a lot of Sega games on the PS2 would have a 60 hertz mode in them as well. But for whatever reason, they chose not to put them in. Uh, to the um, the two Sonic collections on PS2, which is hmm. <laughs> two games that really needed it, but uh, yeah, it was not to be. So it's nice to have them on my shelf at least. And um, the uh, the Game Gear and, Ma and Master System games that are in those collections, those work absolutely fine. Um, so it's it's just really the the Mega Drive games that are affected by this issue. So doesn't yeah. Sonic Gems have the fighting game on it too Sonic Fighters yes it's got Sonic the Fighters and Sonic R which, in which there is, as well which is kind of cool yeah. kind of cool um, actually Hardcore Gaming 101 just posted a really detailed write up on Sonic Fighters um, and I hadn't realized you know I played it a little as a kid well not as a kid but like when that collection first came out and um I didn't really appreciate it, but like I want to go back and revisit it because I, I guess it's a lot more mechanically complex than I gave it credit for. It's based on Virtue Fighter, isn't it? I think. Well, yeah, it is an AM2 game, so yeah. it's, it's that engine. I think it's more close to Fighting Vipers. Right. Um, but yeah, I guess there's a whole shield mechanic and stuff that you get to play with, where you have like a limited number of shields to deploy, and like so part of the game is kind of trying to shatter those your your opponent's shields to leave them more vulnerable. Like you can actually only block a limited amount of times in that game yeah which kind of turns most fighting game you know tactics on its head right right away so it seems like a really interesting game and uh three of the original characters from sonic fighters make cameos as bosses in sonic mania plus oh that's cool yeah it all yeah. like the the the, it's the sega history that's woven through sonic mania it's like unbelievable yeah it just sounds like an incredible sort of fan disc almost for the entire Sonic yeah, series, yeah, which, is, which yeah, is great. Yeah. So yeah, and it's a love letter to Sega too. Like uh, the um, like the first new zone you get to play, Studiopolis, um, is themed around the idea of a television studio where mm. Doctor Robotnik makes his propaganda. And so, and there's a lot, there's like news vans and stuff all over the place and, and like kind of different neon signs. Um, and the news vans are labeled with the same graphics that are on the cars in the original Daytona USA for the Saturn. <laughs> nice. And, and there's neon signs that call back to one of the, like the weird restaurants in the background of, of Streets of Rage games on the Mega Drive. So there's, <laughs> there's just little nuggets like that hidden everywhere. Awesome. 
Alright, well, I will stop talking about Sonic now because, like I say, I'm going to spend a month writing about it and I'm sure we could continue this conversation for hours at this point. But uh... Yeah, I'll talk Sonic all day. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, nothing else you've been playing recently, you said? So... No, that's pretty much it for me. Okay, alright. Well, we'll take a break there then uh, after that uh, lengthy bout of Sonic and we will come back in a moment and discuss some franchises that are dead that we would like to see come back. So we'll see you in just a moment. Welcome back. This is our third segment where we talk about our topic for the day, and today we're talking about franchises that are dead that we would like to see resurrected. And I know Chris has some very strong feelings about one in particular, so I'll let him go first. <laughs> I, I do. And, uh, you know, I had suggested this as the topic for the week because of a recent uh, art- uh, bout of articles that popped up um, earlier in the week on the 23rd that Media Vision, the original developer of Wild Arms, who I also mentioned earlier in regards to making Shining Resonance, um, ha- is currently recruiting 2D designers for an in-development PS4 RPG. Um, now, who knows what the heck that means? Who knows what it's going to be? Um, what really got me riled up is that like Silicon Air and some of the other um, websites who'd posted the article chose to post wild arms art with it and just like (laughs) it just like broke my heart right because there's it the likelihood that this is remotely wild arms related is like slim to nil um media vision is first and foremost um these days a uh subcontract development house so um like i said they made shining resonance they made the uh the digimon story cyber sleuth RPGs for Bandai a couple years ago. Um, they made the action-based um, Valkyria Chronicles that nobody liked, Valkyria Revolution. Um, yeah. it, it's very rare anymore that Media Vision makes a game based in one of their universes. It's almost always um, subcontract work. So um, I, I find it very unlikely that it would be a new Wild Arms. Um, but that being said, boy, I wish it was a new Wild Arms. <laughs> because um, I say this with a straight face. If there's one thing any anyone should know about me, RERPGs, um, Wild Arms is my favorite RPG franchise. Um, bar none. No comparison by a long mile. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I... I am well familiar with uh, with Wild Arms, but for the benefit of those listening, why don't you outline what it is that you like so much about it? Okay, well, Wild Arms is, first of all, in terms of setting, probably the most unique, one or one of the most unique JRPG franchise out there, because it takes um, all, pretty much everything you would traditionally associate with RPGs, like fantasy and magic and spunky spunky heroines and do-gooders and weird twists of fate that sometimes involve aliens um but but it's all set in a world that incorporates the tropes of the traditional american wild west so it's not abnormal for your party to consist of a mage who summons summon monsters and a japanese swordsman um, who uses a katana, but also someone who collects firearms. 
It's like the titular, <laughs> like the titular arms of the Wild Arms series refers to guns because in that world, the the guns are made by like armsmiths, which are kind of revered in the same way that like a legendary blacksmith is revered in like a fantasy RPG. Like the arms are rare, and like people who can handle and use them are rare. So it's just kind of this interesting world that it's the wild west but also there's fantasy and magic and technology so the original game involves um archaeology a lot because there were uh, ancient golems that had been unearthed so there was also giant robots ah. in in the old west like it just it's really cool and uh for someone like me who spent a long time um in college and graduate school uh, specifically studying western film um identifying those tropes and what they mean in a piece of popular culture is really really important to me so i'm a, I'm a big fan of western film so to have that setting incorporated into my favorite game genre is an easy win um mechanically wild arms also frequently differentiates itself um, by being very bold in terms of what it's willing to explore. So like the first three wild arms, and to a slightly lesser extent the later ones, um, also included um, Zelda-style puzzle solving into their dungeons. So each of the three main characters, say, and just in the first game I'll use for reference, also throughout the game acquire different tools. So like in the same way that Link gets his boomerang and his bombs, etc., the characters in Wild Arms got like a rod that could shoot fire to hit switches across the way, or uh, the main character Rudy gets bombs as well. Um, the swordsman character Jack has a little mouse that can run run into mouse holes to like retrieve items or hit switches on the other side of a wall. So like you're also solving puzzles on top of the traditional RPG exploration and combat. The later games made their innovation more um, focused in the combat. So Wild Arms 4 and 5 uh, revamped the entire combat system to incorporate a hexagonal grid. So like where positioning and character placement became important um, in almost a strategy RPG style. So the Wild Arms games have always been a playground for uh, genre hybridity and really interesting explorations of mechanics on top of the the thematic hybridity in the story. So they're just really cool. Yeah. Oh. I, it always surprised me a bit that the um, the, the sort of Zelda-style mechanics that uh, you talked about in the first few games, that more RPGs didn't do that. Because particularly for sort of top-down, sprite-based pixel art RPGs, it just seems like a really natural fit to combine those mechanics with the RPG side of things. So I'm honestly surprised that more developers didn't do that. Yeah, it's not something that happens often. Really, the only other series I can think of that did it was uh, the Lufia series on the mm. on the Super Nintendo. So, I mean, that did predate Wild Arms. Um, you know, I remember actually the first time I played Wild Arms saying, wow, this feels a lot like Lufia too. Like, I yeah. wonder if this is the same developers. Like, um, So, yeah, Lufia did it on the Super Nintendo, but I can't think of any other series that does it. No, and I mean... Yeah, it's there are puzzles in some RPGs. Like, I mean, um, just going back to Dragon Quest as well. There, there are puzzles in some Dragon Quest dungeons, but they tend to be of the sort of navigational variety, so sort of environmental puzzles, uh, stepping mm. on conveyor belts and that sort of thing. Box very, pushing. Yeah, I, not even that. I don't think I pushed a single box in Dragon Quest. You just smash them open and get stuff out of them. But um, 
the the puzzles in 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 Dragon Quest Four certainly feel very much the same kind of thing that you'd be doing in something like uh, a first person dungeon crawler. Okay. Uh, so, so things like conveyor belts and stuff like that. That's a, sort of a, a perennial favourite in first person dungeon crawlers. But uh, but they were there in Dragon Quest Four as well. So um, that's that's probably something to do with the whole crossover between early Dragon Quest and Wizardry and that sort of thing a sort of hangover from, from that side of things but uh, so there were a few puzzles in there um, Final Fantasy X had a few puzzles here and there as well in the temples and so on yeah, but they, yeah. a lot of those were just a case of trial and error in many cases so it's like well if you put the thing here and it doesn't do anything then that thing must obviously go somewhere else and it yeah, wasn't really yeah. it wasn't really very engaging for me certainly um, whereas uh, the I, I've only played the first Wild Arms, but yeah, I absolutely love the Zelda-style puzzles in that, like the using bombs and the shooting the mouse through things to, to retrieve items and press switches and stuff. That Yeah, that sort of thing is just a really good way of adding some engagement to the exploration part of RPGs. Yeah, and it also, tie, you know, we were mentioning like mechanics, and when mechanics and themes tie together. Yeah. So, like... Yeah. Um, one of the characters in the original Wild Arms, Jack, is meant to be a bit of an analog for Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. So, so um, like archaeology is really important to the plot of the first Wild Arms, and uh, subsequently history and legacy in general is kind of the most important thread through all the Wild Arms games, like the the consequences of the past. Yeah. Um, so by incorporating like brain teasers and puzzle solving, like the games always were trying to make you feel like Indiana Jones. Like, yeah. like how, like, Indiana Jones was always clever. Like, how can I use this bag of dust to offset this weight trigger mechanism, right? Like, it, it, it's trying to get you in that mindset to be a detective as well as an adventurer. Yeah. It's also a bit of a throwback to uh, tabletop role-playing as well. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, in that, um, th- th- uh, uh, I mean, different Dungeon Masters do things in different ways, but certainly the, the Dungeon Masters that I have played tabletop RPGs with in the past... Uh, have all liked to incorporate things other than talking to people and fighting people. Uh, it, there was there was one guy in particular who who used to love to put actual puzzles in his dungeons. Um, so sort of proper full-on brain teasers that we'd have to use items and we'd have to figure things out and decode stuff and that that kind of thing. And yeah, they were always a lot of fun. And you had you had the flexibility to put those into into tabletop role-playing sessions and. Yeah, when when that sort of stuff is incorporated into uh, a computer or console RPG, it sort of brings back very fond memories of that side of things and the flexibility that tabletop role-playing can offer that uh, isn't necessarily evident in computer and console RPGs by by their very nature, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so so that's Wild Arms. Um, The last Wild Arms title was um, Wild Arms Crossfire for the PSP, which was... 2008 so that was a full decade at this point yeah um the last proper wild arms that wasn't an offshoot was wild arms 5 which was um depending on your region 2007 2008 as well um and that game was kind of set up as a 10th anniversary celebration title like it had cameos from other previous characters like it was a great way to wrap the series up if indeed it could be the last one or is the last one but Part of me, literally every Sony E3, is like, "What if the next trailer starts with a, <laughs> starts with a whistle and it's a Wild Arms?" Because it's it's just because um, also Wild Arms is Sony's RPG series. Yeah. 
Um, that's Sony's first party RPG series, which a lot of people forget. Um, so just the fact alone that these listings um, for this media vision recruitment are emphasizing the fact that it is for a PS4 RPG is, uh, is another thing that's tipping people off. So like maybe it's finally time, but um, it's probably not. <clears throat> have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah. So what would, what would you want to see from a new one? Um, well, I would want to see um, an interesting approach to graphics. Mm-hmm. I think um, Wild Arms 3 had this beautiful kind of like watercolor cell shading kind of thing going on. Um, I think, you know, going back to our discussion about graphics in our previous episode, um, I think to not use the capabilities of modern hardware to really make that Western theme shine with like some sepia tones and some like, washed out looks and some cool approaches um, would really be a missed opportunity. So I would want the game to look very unique. Um, mechanically, I just, um, like I said, it, there's never really been a consistency in terms of Wild Arms. It's always been kind of a playground for new mechanics and interesting things, sometimes radically so. Um, that switch up for the combat system between 3 and 4 really threw a lot of people for a loop. So, like, I don't really come into wanting a new Wild Arms, um, impacting how I would want it to play as long as it's some kind of RPG with... Battle, you know, sequence-based combat or menu-based combat. I would want that, but what form that takes, I'm open to just about anything. Um, thematically, like all the other games, I, I need it to have the Western influence, and I need it to place a very specific emphasis in terms of its story on um, the past, the ramifications of the past, and dealing with what happens when we don't respect the past, which is kind of a running thread that's been through all the games. But other than that, it's pretty non-specific stuff. I just want it to look and feel like Wild Arms, yeah. And I want and I want there to be whistling in the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> wow, sounds good to me. All right, anything else to add on that? Not in terms of Wild Arms, no. All right, so I mean, keeping on the track of old RPG series that should come back, I would like to talk a little bit about Shadow Hearts. I was hoping you would, because yes. I don't know much. I don't know much about Shadow Hearts other than my familiarity with its legacy like yes. having having read about it historically I've, I've not really played any of them for more than you know minutes in passing at a friend's house like i, I don't know much about them mm. um so i i will preface this by saying that i have only played the uh, what is technically the middle two shadow hearts games so i have played shadow hearts and shadow hearts covenant so before shadow hearts on the ps1 there was kudelka which was the prequel uh, and on PS2, after Shadow Hearts Covenant, there is Shadow Hearts from the New World, which I understand is um, a little bit different in tone and things. And uh, some people don't seem to like it quite so much, but I can't really judge one way or the other as yet because I, I haven't tried it. But so everything I'm going to say here is based on Shadow Hearts and Shadow Hearts Covenant, which are designed to be taken as a pair. They follow on from each other. And Covenant, Covenant is widely considered to be the best of the series from what i understand yes. right yes absolutely I, I would agree with that but it, it is it is important to take shadow hearts and shadow hearts covenant as a pair because they follow on from each other and in fact technically um there is a strange sort of time loop thing going on where if i remember rightly i think the bad ending of shadow hearts leads to shadow hearts covenant which then leads back to shadow hearts and then leads to the good ending of shadow hearts if I remember rightly, or something like that. There, there awesome. is some, Yeah, there is some sort of convoluted thing like that going on. But um, 
uh, basically the concept of it is uh you are this guy called uh yuri who is um I forget the exact term for it, but it, basically he can sort of fuse himself with various monsters to do transformation abilities and, and that kind of thing. And his his quest kind of takes him all over World War One era Europe uh, and into Asia uh, a bit as well. And um, yeah, j just that that unique setting is a big part of shadow hearts but like you were talking about with wild arms it's not just playing that setting completely straight so you you're, you're not playing an rpg where you're fighting against german soldiers or whatever or anything like that you are you are playing an rpg that uses world war one era europe and asia as the backdrop to the action but then all sorts of other completely crazy nonsense is going on over the top of it um but the the cool thing about the series is that it's one of those games where there is all sorts of crazy nonsense going on but it plays it straight completely straight so important it, yeah it it is it is not giving knowing winks to the player it is not breaking the fourth wall at any point it is just telling this story about stuff that on paper is absolutely ridiculous but in in the game it takes itself so wonderfully seriously that you can't help but be completely engaged with it and I think a big appeal for Shadow Hearts for many people is the cast of characters that goes on because it's such an interesting group of people. So, uh, across the two games that I'm talking about here, you've got um, you've got a gay vampire who hits people with uh, with pillars and post boxes. Um, you have got um, you've got Geppetto from Pinocchio. <laughs> you uh, you've got a, a fortune teller. Uh, you've got just just a straight up dog. He's, he's just, <laughs> just, just, just doing dog things. Uh, he he has this whole side quest of going around and proving himself to be the best dog there is, just by going around and defeating other dogs in battle. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, there are all sorts of of little things in the series that just add a whole bunch of character and things to it. Like the the way you power up, um, uh, the way you power up Geppetto's puppet, which is his weapon. Uh, the way you pair up is um, the, uh, that puppet is by uh, tracking down this this pair of gay dudes who hang out in every town that you come to, and basically bringing them pornography. <laughs> and uh, if if you stud bring them cards in, or whatever, yeah, stud cards. If you if you bring them enough stud cards, they will make new dresses for your puppet, and that makes your puppet better. So, <laughs> and it yeah, it it is just wonderful, just because it, it is so atmospheric. Um, it, it just blends this utterly absurd stuff going on with this wonderful kind of gothic aesthetic. So it looks wonderful. So the the first Shadow Hearts game is kind of a, 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 a bit dated in terms of the way it's presented. It's presented a bit like uh, sort of Final Fantasy VIII. So you've got pre-rendered backdrops with sort of realistically proportioned characters running around on top of them. And then Shadow Hearts 2, uh, sorry, Shadow Hearts Covenant switched to a full 3D thing and actually ended up being one of, probably one of the best looking games on the PS2 for me in terms of things like character models and such like. Um, but yeah, the, the whole thing has got a lovely consistent aesthetic to it. Uh, it's got excellent music and sound and that kind of thing it's got a wonderful atmosphere and then it's got this brilliant combat system in it as well which is the the component of it that is most commonly singled out for praise um so it uses the system called the judgment thing which is a rather grandiose name for a um what is basically a rhythm based combat system so it is turn based but what happens is when you choose to do an action this ring pops up uh, and this line starts spinning around it 
and you have to press the button at the right time when the the line that spins around it coincides with these specially marked areas on the ring. And My certain areas and I used to call it the Wheel of Fortune combat system. Yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. But the the way it works is if if you if you hit one of the larger areas, then you will do a, a normal hit or a normal success on it. And there are smaller areas on it that allow you to do critical hits. So critical hits are not chance based in Shadow Hearts. They are entirely based on your own timing and accuracy. So in theory, you could crit every time if you are good enough at using this Judgment Ring system. Another thing that's really interesting about it is that um, the Judgment Ring isn't just used in combat. It is often used out in the field as well. So anytime you come across a, a situation that you could potentially fail, uh, there is a judgment ring for it. So, for example, there's a sequence in one town where you have to pick a lock. So there is a judgment ring sequence of you trying to pick the lock. And bringing it back to sort of the tabletop style things, this just brings to mind the feeling of sort of making skill checks and stuff like that. Um, honestly, it's been a long time since I played it, so I can't recall whether or not there was a sequence where it was actually completely dependent on you succeeding that sequence to progress or if there was a way around it if you really weren't able to do it but yeah it just added a feeling of uh, actual interactivity and doing stuff out in the field beyond just running around and looking for the next cutscene basically so yeah they they are just absolutely fantastic games that are well worth playing i agree entirely covenant is definitely the best one um but it, it helps in terms of narrative context if you play shadow hearts before you play shadow hearts covenant just to just to get an understanding of the recurring characters who are in both um and well to get the complete story really so i would definitely like to see a new shadow hearts although it's honestly kind of difficult to imagine exactly how they would do it they would have to start a new story because the shadow hearts shadow hearts covenant cycle was was very much complete and as i say almost cyclical in terms of how it basically goes back around and happens again if if you you do things right um yeah new world was not well regarded yeah so so that you say if there was a new shadow hearts they would have to be very careful to try and maintain that same kind of atmosphere and feeling not take the ridiculous stuff too far make sure they play it straight it's not a comedy rpg it's it's just an RPG set in a gothic environment that just happens to have a lot of ridiculous and funny stuff going on in it. So, um, yeah, that would be a very difficult balancing act to pull off, but uh, it was something I would very much like to see happen at some point. And if you haven't checked out Shadow Hearts, then uh, definitely give it a look. It's been on my list of like, if I get a good Christmas bonus this year, I'm gonna hop on eBay and get a full set, like wish <laughs> wish list for like the past four years. But like. Stuff just keeps coming up, <laughs> you, you know. But I've always wanted to have them yeah. and play and play them because um, just the whole thing, like the the themat thematically, it look it's very much appears to be kind of trying to recreate the feeling of like 1930s like pulp gothic horror novels and comics. Yes, like, very much. Like they like it's you know very much like the whole H.P. Lovecraft like Cthulhu like weird things are happening in the world around us like and I eat that stuff for breakfast so it, there's literally yes. no reason I think, shouldn't think, be playing think, these. Thinking about it, I think I think one of the things that I like about it is the fact that weird stuff is going on, but you are one of the weird things basically. Yeah, so, sure. So 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 rather than the standard Lovecraftian approach, which is sort of someone coming to terms with things that they don't understand and sort of powers beyond comprehension and powers from beyond the stars and that sort of thing, in Shadow Hearts, you you are one of those weird things that has no real explanation. 
you are one of those supernatural things and and you come into contact with other supernatural unexplainable things and that's just a really interesting twist on the whole thing it, it, mm -hmm. it sort of steers away from the standard psychological horror side of things and gives it a, a very very distinctive feel oh and also um a major boss in the latter half of shadow hearts covenant is rasputin and you can get princess anastasia of russia in your party <laughs> yeah the, the characters are just i want to i want to <laughs> play new world because one of the characters you get in new world is just like a middle-aged white man who is a ninja <laughs> like like a goof like and 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 i think there's a mariachi guy too yeah yeah it's, it's just it's just it's great it's just it's just so funny i think there's a cat too in the in from the new world yeah it's, it, i mean you, you say these things i i would just not be surprised to see any of those things in shadow hearts at this point it's just like oh this this weird things happen yeah yeah that's shadow hearts <laughs> All right. So, uh, anything else you would like to uh, celebrate or bring yeah, back? Yeah, I penciled a couple things down. I penciled three franchises down when we decided on the topic. Two of which are RPGs. So I'll mix it up and I'll go with the one that isn't an RPG. I want a new Klonoa. Okay. I want I want a new Klonoa very badly. Um, the last Klonoa game was the remake of the original for the Wii in 2009 so yep. it's been nine years since we've seen a new Klonoa title um, Klonoa is kind of Namco's excuse for like a Sonic Mario and he's an adorable little animal that is kind of indescribable and he looks like a fusion like he looks like a cat that has big cocker spaniel ears um, that he uses to float um, like Yoshi he can extend his jumps by flapping his ears um, and like the big hook of Klonoa games is uh, picking things up. So um, they're side scrollers, generally set on a 3D plane. So the levels kind of dynamically like twist and turn around um, in kind of impressive ways, but always still being controlled on a 2D plane as a side scroller. And uh, Klonoa has a magic ring, and when he shoots enemies with the ring, they just hover over his head like bubbles. And then he can do different things with those enemies. He can either throw them to use them as a weapon, or throw them to hit switches to activate doors and stage gimmicks, or he can jump and then throw the enemy down to use it as a boost for a double jump. So there's always a very strong puzzle solving element in Klonoa games that I find extremely satisfying um, because much like um, kind of like Donkey Kong Country and like some some of the side scrollers where the levels are littered with like gems and special coins and like you haven't really beaten Klonoa until you've collected all 100 coins in each stage or you've collected all six puppet fragments in each stage and to get all of them you must use the enemies around you in efficient ways to figure out where to jump, double jump, how to catch an enemy off of that double jump and then chain it into a second double jump. So it's really cute, it's really friendly, but it's also a side-scroller that's more about thinking and timing than it is about reflex action. And it's okay. a really unique series, and I love it to death. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds right for a re reboot. I feel like quite a few people have been mentioning Cloud Hour recently, and I'm, I'm trying to remember what prompted it. But I, I know you're not the first person to bring up Cloud Hour recently, but I, I honestly can't remember what the context of, uh, of other conversations I've, uh, I've witnessed on this is. Well, but, so. he's kind of... he makes appearances a lot. Like, it's clear that Namco, like, loves him, and, like, 
he makes cameos a lot, or like his face will appear. Like you'll be playing like a Tales game, and you'll unlock like the trophy of friendship, and it'll be a statue of Klonoa. Like he makes <laughs> he makes cameos all over the place, but like they just don't make new games for him. Yeah. Oh, shame. It's uh, again not a series that I'm familiar with, but uh, it's as I say, there is obviously a lot of love for it out there, judging from conversations I've seen happening recently and what you're saying there, so... Yeah. yeah, I mean, and unlike some of the other stuff we've discussed, where, like, Wild Arms almost had a clear conclusion with Five, so it's unlikely that there yeah. will be any more. Um, with Shadow Hearts, the original developer, Sacknoth, they're not around anymore, so the likelihood of that happening is very slim. But, like, Klonoa is uh, a mascot character for Namco Bandai. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, guess what? Namco Bandai's still around. They can make yeah. that happen for me. Yeah, and I mean, the very nature of mascot games means that you can potentially do limitless things with them, can't you? So, I mean, it's very rare that you will have a game with a character like that that has a definite conclusion you are never going to see this yeah, character Yeah, it's just a again, separate so. cute adventure. It's an excuse for new stages and new enemies. That's all I want. Hey, listen, if we can get a Mega Man 11 from Capcom this fall, like, I want a Klonoa from Namco Bandai on the Switch. Yeah. Su super cute, bright, <laughs> cel-shaded visuals. Come on here. Make Do it happen, it. Namco. Make it happen. Alright. Um, I've got, I think, uh, th three more games that I would like to bring up. Two of them very much go together. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take those as a pair. Uh, and this is a pair of racing games from um, sort of the, the mid-life of the Xbox 360 and PS3. Which is uh, Blur from Activision oh, yeah. Creations, and and Split Second from uh, Disney's BlackRock Studios, and th these two are often lumped together because they came out around the same time, and they both were marketed atrociously. Um, and despite that, they both have uh, legions of dedicated fans who would very much like to see these come back or get re-released, or anything really. Neither of them are uh, technically a series, since they had one game and then died. Um, in fact, I think Blur, Blur is the game that killed off Bizarre Creations completely, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, but um, yeah, for, for those unfamiliar, they are both arcade racers of uh, varying descriptions. Blur is basically uh, Mario Kart with real cars. Um, in that you you drive uh, sort of the the kind of vehicles that you'd be driving in something like uh, Project Gotham Racing, Bizarre Creations, other big series, uh, but you are driving through these beautiful sort of neon soaked environments. So these neon power ups lying on the track that allow you to do things like shoot guns out the front of your car, uh, drop mines on the thing. But but they're not they're not realistic weapons. So you're not shooting an actual machine gun. You are shooting these bright purple neon bolts out the front Sounds of your amazing. car. You are dropping you, you are dropping this glowing red bomb on the track and that sort of thing. And it's just got this amazing look to it. Um, and it's yeah, absolutely one of the most distinctive races with a vaguely realistic aesthetic I've seen because a, a lot of I mean we, we talked about this in the graphics episode but a lot of races that are shooting for photorealism they don't have a lot of style to them but Blur very much had style to it so it had a distinctive use of colour in there so there, were, there was all this neon stuff going on but also just the background scenery was very distinctive so it used lots of blues and oranges so there was a feel of sort of twilight and dusk going on in a lot of the tracks um, it used real-world areas, but then it had this ridiculous stuff going on on top of it. Uh, so, like you'd be and 
because bizarre creations were from the uk you would get uk based tracks in there so you could race around a seaside town called brighton which i haven't seen in any racing game ever i mean brighton's a lovely place to go and visit and go and go out night clubbing and especially if you're gay but um <laughs> i i've not seen it in a racing game before so to have it in in such a an interesting racing game was uh, was really cool and to be able to blow stuff up as you're driving off brighton pier in a bmw m3 so yeah, it is real cool. cars Split like second. licensed vehicles not not yeah. like realistically oh, yeah, yeah, styled it vehicles it's actual licensed cars no it it is actual real cars actual real cars that they they allowed to be blown up thrown around damaged all sorts of things so yeah all real that's cars. neat um yeah uh split second on the other hand is um a, a kind of different approach the concept of split second is that you are a contestant on a reality show uh and the reality show is all based around car racing but it's uh car racing on these specially designed tracks that are littered with uh, basically movie style pyrotechnics and explosives and, and things happening and so the uh, the core mechanic of split second aside from uh just just driving is instead of building up a boost bar uh, you build up this bar that allows you to trigger various effects in the environment and so you'll be driving along and you'll see an icon appear in front of you and if you've got enough charge in your bar you can press the button and that will make something explode which will do something with that environmental thing so if it's if it's um sort of low on your bar it'll be quite a small thing like you might make something at the side of the road blow up and anything that's driving nearby it might get knocked to the side and forced to crash or something like that but you have these level two things as well if you build your bar up to the maximum uh, and those will have a massive impact on the track as a whole so for example there's one level where you are um you are driving sort of around an industrial area and if you trigger a level two um I, I forget the actual name of them but if you trigger trigger one of these level two abilities on this track then you'll be driving towards this gigantic chimney that you see in front of you you set it off it starts exploding it topples down in front of you collapses onto the track shatters the track into pieces and then the the route of the race for the rest of that race is then driving through this chimney jumping out the other side and so on so it just has this amazing sort of um stuntman type experience in there that you're 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 driving in kind of like a movie basically that, that was the whole concept of it it was so incredibly exciting to play and it also had one of the most distinctive soundtracks i think i've heard in the racing game around that point was was the time that uh racing games were very much focusing on having licensed soundtracks so ea with the need for speed series was was sort of having the ea sports tracks which was just like the worst kind of license <laughs> music imaginable but but <laughs> but um but split second had a properly fully composed orchestral soundtrack that's awesome um in a movie style and it was dynamic as well so based on what was going on in the race the track would dynamically remix itself so as you as things were getting more exciting and more intense as you were pushing for the front there sort of the layers of instruments would build up it would get more exciting the tempo might increase you'd get different melodic lines coming in it was just an amazing experience that just got marketed not at all basically i was gonna say hardly, any, hardly anyone played very few people talk about these days but the people who did play it they well they react like i just have oh, I, I was gonna say <laughs> this sounds really fun and unique so it must have been eviscerated yeah. and nobody liked it and played it but it sounds like 
it might have a nice loyal fan following at least yeah it, it's it's not that no one liked it even but it, it got good reviews oh, yeah. at the time of That's release good. as did blur but it's it's it, it's just that I'm not sure if it was bad timing or anything. I'd have to actually look into the the release timing of it, but it was just the fact that that Disney just didn't really seem to know what to do with it. Just like Activision didn't really seem to know what to do with Blur either. Blur had had a bit of marketing that was sort of based on its similarity to Mario Kart, but I think they they went too far with that in that people ended up thinking that it was just a shallow sort of kart racer and not this incredibly unique experience that it actually ended up being and just so people ended up passing it up which is a real shame because those two games are just amazing i would love to see new ones or just re-releases of them at this point to be honest yeah i would love to get a you know like they just did with burnout paradise i would i would love for a ps4 remaster of blur yeah because i'd love to get my hands on it i think in terms of marketing like unique visual presentation is very difficult to market properly so it, yeah, so definitely. so if a great deal of your game revolves around a unique style and visual presentation, it's hard to really sell that up. We, we saw the same thing back with uh, Auto Modelista on the PS2. Like yes. that game should have flown off shelves just based on the way it looked, but it didn't. It was a real real massive letdown uh, sales wise. Well, at least it, these are two games that I still have on my shelf, so I can I can still enjoy them when I want. Uh, one interesting thing about Blur is that it, it was available on PC for a while via Steam, um, but for some reason it got pulled from Steam, so you can no longer buy that anywhere digitally. So the only way to get the PC version now is to actually buy a physical copy of it, and good luck with that. They did actually re-release Split Second a while back on Steam, though, so if you have a PC, you can still get a copy of that and play it, uh, as well as, obviously, the old console versions as well. So... That is still out there in the wild. I'm wondering if one of the car licensors didn't retract their license or something. Could well be. Could well be something like that, yeah. That's the only drawback with using licensed stuff. Yes. Alright, so uh, those are my probably my two favourite racing games of all time uh, <laughs> that we have right there. So, do you have any other games that you wanted to bring up for this? I think you said there was uh, a, another RPG. Yeah, you yeah, about. yeah. Breath of Fire. Ah, uh, yes. I, I think this is probably one that a lot of people would empathize with, but um, I want a Breath of Fire pretty badly. Um, that isn't a mobile game. That it, yeah, yeah. So, Breath of Fire 6, which the amount that it offends me that they had the audacity to make a mobile entry and make it the number a numbered entry in the series um rank rankles me beyond belief but yeah breath of fire 6 was a mobile game and it was released in 2016. before that breath of fire dragon quarter which is technically considered breath of fire 5 was 2002. so if, yeah. if i ignore the mobile game it's been 16 years since we've had a proper console Breath of Fire entry. Now, yeah. granted, Capcom isn't really in the RPG market these days unless it's action-heavy RPGs, um, things like Dragon's Dogma or Monster Hunter, but um, goddamn if I don't love Breath of Fire. And um, specifically PS1 era Breath of Fire. Um, as I touched on in our last podcast when I kind of ranted about Strider 2 
for 15 minutes. Um, just, there's just something about PS1 era Capcom that like soothes me beyond belief. Just like yeah. their unique visual aesthetic during that era and like their fusion of like 2D sprites on 3D planes was like defining for me in terms of like what I expect and want a video game to look like. Um, Breath of Fire 4 specifically is really an impactful game for me in terms of visuals. So, um, I don't know, it's it's hard to really describe what Breath of Fire is about. It's not super unique in terms of mechanics or anything really. It's just a kind of a standard turn-based RPG. Um, the big mechanical hook in any of them is that the main character, Ryu, can always turn into a dragon. And there's always some kind of different system for like how he can collect different dragon transformations or manipulate those in battle. Um, dragon Quarter, which is technically 5, was uh, vastly different mechanically from 1 through 4 in that it kind of mixed, mixed a um, top-down grid-based strategy combat system with some roguelike elements and permadeath. So it wasn't particularly well received by the fan community at the time of its launch, but I think in retrospect, a lot of people who engage with it on its own terms still find it to be a pretty solid game, I know I do. Um, but yeah, it's just a bright, colorful, um, adventure anime aesthetic in the original um, four titles. Um, one of the things that's always kind of set it apart is kind of, um, kind of non-human characters that are kind of in this world and it's not something that people question like there's just kind of races of fish people or like races of yeah. um like uh there's always a, a character nina who is from windia and like her people are like angels they have like white bird wings and um they, you know there's a cute cat girl in the second one there's a archer who's also a wolf man in the first one um there's a gargoyle monk in the third one, just like just like really cool cartoony characters with like neat animal influences, and uh, I just I love the world, I love the appearance of it, and it has a bit of a light-hearted feel, um, and I want another one. Yeah, that that would be good. I mean, um, one one thing that um, has, has struck me with that is uh, I know you're not a big fan of the of the Trails series from Falcom, but in a lot of ways, I feel like the Trails in the Sky series is taking a lot of cues from PS1 era Breath of Fire in particular. Okay. Uh, spe specifically Breath of Fire 3. Um, because Trails in the Sky has got this, it's, it's got the sort of sprites on 3D background thing going on. Um, and, uh, and another thing that, that immediately struck me with Breath of Fire 3 when I first played it was the soundtrack, which was very unusual for an RPG. Yeah. It's very, very, very sort of jazz inspired and so on. It's good. And again, Trails in the Sky uses a very similar sort of jazz-inspired soundtrack for its battle themes and such like. So, yeah, I think I think there's definitely some influence going on there, but the execution is a bit different. So, like, Trails is a lot more dialogue-heavy than uh, Breath of Fire uh, ever was, and I know that's one of the reasons that you've kind of bounced off that a bit in the in the past. So, um, yeah, but there's there's definitely developers who are still trying to do that kind of thing. But you, you're absolutely right; it would be great to see a new Breath of Fire that isn't a mobile game. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a lot of series we could say that about these days, but you know. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I had: Klonoa, Wild Arms, and Breath of Fire. Just three franchises yeah. I've always really liked that I wish. Yeah, those are all very solid choices. Definitely, the only other one I want to bring up for now is uh, Atlas's uh, Trauma Center series. Oh yeah, which is a which is a long time favorite of mine. 
Um, I originally got into the series almost by chance. I remember uh, I, I, I've t I talked a little bit about this um, for uh, my, my Patreon followers recently. Uh, I did an article about sort of uh, some aspects of my gaming history. And one of the things I mentioned in that is that whenever I got a new console, one of the things that I always found myself wanting to do specifically, for, for no real reason, but just to, just to be a bit awkward and different, is that... Whenever a new console came out and I bought one close to launch, I would always specifically avoid the games that had, had all the hype around them. So, for example, uh, when the PS2 came out, uh, I bought uh, I bought a copy of Shadow of Memories with it, rather than whatever was big at the time, Killzone or whatever. Um, and when I got a Nintendo DS, one of the things that I picked up, I, I picked up two games, I think, with my Nintendo DS when I first got it, which was uh, Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, and the first Trauma Center game. Because they both sounded like games uh, that were about things that I had not seen games made of before. So Phoenix Wright was about being a lawyer. And I thought, ah, oh, this can't possibly be good. And it ended up being amazing. That's a whole other discussion. Um, and Trauma Center was uh, a game about being a doctor. Or, or specifically a surgeon. Now, there, there had been games like that before. There was, uh, there was uh, a game that the... <laughs> In fact, there was a game on PC called Life and Death by a company called Mindscape that uh, the fact that I am now absolutely terrified of hospitals as an adult, uh, I attribute entirely to an advert for this game that I saw in a copy of Advanced <laughs> uh, Computer Entertainment one year. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was just a really horrible advert with all sort of bloodstained gores and bandages and stuff and about, about oh, you hold people's life in the palm of your hand and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that's beside the point. So there had been games about um, about being a surgeon before, but not for a long time. And so Trauma Center was relatively something I'd not seen before. So I tried it out, and um, yeah, I was really surprised to discover a game with a really compelling story, and also some really cool gameplay as well that that fitted really well with the DS's control scheme. So. If you've not played Trauma Center before, uh, the basic concept is you have a, a bit of visual novel style storytelling and exposition, and then you get some sort of surgery that you have to do. And early in the game, these are fairly sort of routine things that you'd expect a, a normal surgeon to be doing. So, for example, in one level, you have a guy who's had a car accident, so you have to pull chunks of glass out of his leg and stitch up the... Um, stitch up the holes that are left and that sort of thing um, but rather than attempting to be a realistic simulation like life and death was uh, trauma center takes a very sort of action surgery approach to it. So it <laughs> action like surgery. A, yeah so so it's, it's almost like a sort of action puzzle game in many ways in that you have to remember sort of these um, these kind of gestures that you do uh, and the order in which to do things uh, and you get graded based on sort of how quickly and accurately you do things so sort of making the initial incision in the patient is like you could be really careful and just cut carefully along the line it marks out for you but you get a lot more points for it if you just basically get your scalpel and just sort of swipe it down the center of their abdomen and just slice them open like that so yeah it's it's basically sur surgery with a flourish if such a thing exists um, but the interesting thing with it is it combines elements of sort of sci-fi as it goes on as well. So the first trauma center is about this uh, this artificially developed virus called GILT, um, which which is an acronym for something that they obviously shoehorned in. But yeah, people are infected with GILT and you have to deal with that. 
Um, and guilt comes in several different forms that you have to learn how to deal with. So you, you have some that you have to sort of use ultrasound to find a, a thing that's lurking in someone's pancreas and then suck it out with a hose and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, and uh, they they have a, a, a final boss encounter, which is not the sort of thing you expect to hear from a surgery game. But uh, yeah, they, uh, trauma center games have final bosses. Um, which is something that I, I very much liked. Um, so there were two Trauma Center games on the DS, uh, one of which I have actually haven't played today. I do own a copy, but I haven't tried it. Then they remade the first DS one for the Wii um, as uh, a second opinion, which told the same story, but they updated the graphics and they made the controls use the Wii's pointer controls rather than the touchscreen. Uh, and then they did an all-original one for Wii called New Blood, which uh, had a, a whole new story, uh, full voice acting, um, basically the same mechanics uh, using the pointer on the Wii, but uh, a new story, a new, uh, a new disease to deal with. And then the last installment in the series was a game called Trauma Team, which is the main reason that I would like the series to come back, because Trauma Team was an incredible game. So Trauma Team took the basic concept of Trauma Center, which is uh, sort of medical drama combined with a bit of sci-fi, um, and it expanded it beyond just the surgery concept into a number of different disciplines. So you still had surgery levels with one particular character, and the way the story worked is that there were different episodes with, I think there were maybe six different characters altogether, and each of them had their own specialism. So there was a surgeon, uh, there was a uh, diagnostician, there was a uh, orthopedic surgeon, uh, there was a first response nurse, uh, and there was a forensic investigator as well. So as you progress through the story, you played episodes from each of these characters' perspectives, and then you had to do basically what their job was. So, for example, in the stages where you were doing the first response, it was very similar to the surgery, but you had very limited tools to work with. So you'd have to sort of patch people up without sort of your full complement of, of drugs and tools that you'd have in a properly equipped operating theatre. You'd be dealing with like burn victims or people who'd been trapped in rubble or that sort of thing. Um, the orthopaedic surgeon, you had very precise movements to make as you were sort of putting bones back in place and that kind of thing. Um, and then the, the forensic investigator side of things was very much like a, um, a point-and-click adventure, basically. So it unfolded from a first-person perspective. You had to go to crime scenes and work out what had happened. Um, you'd, you'd have to investigate things, you'd have to do autopsies on um, on corpses and that kind of thing to figure out what had happened. And then you'd have uh, this sort of discussion with your, uh, your handler at the end of it where you had to answer questions about all the things that you discovered in your investigation. And it was, it was just such an interesting game in that it threw all these things together and it managed to tell a really coherent, really exciting story um, with all those diverse mechanics in there. Had an incredible soundtrack and um never came out in europe as well so trauma team is the the sole reason that i have a modded wii that can play import games wow that is literally the only reason i because i i loved the earlier trauma center game so much i modded my wii just to play a north american version of it um but yeah we've we've not had a peep out of the series since which yeah i i would have thought the wii u in particular would have been ideal for it oh yeah with the so touch you, screen you, yeah, using the gamepad as, as like your operating table while you had like the characters on the screen talking to you and that sort of thing. Um, so th that's basically how the DS handled things. You'd have the surgery going on on the lower screen, and you'd have you'd have dialogue on the upper screen. So you'd have to actively look away from what you were doing to see what people were saying to you, just like sort of someone doing that in reality would have to do. Um, 
Oh, hopefully but yes. switch. Yeah. You know. You you never know. You never know. The Joy-Cons um, work. <laughs> like they could they could imagine doing a defibrillator motion with the two Joy-Cons and they, there's all yeah. there's all kinds of cool ideas they could come up with. Yeah, but uh, I mean it, it just seems like a series that the Atlas has kind of slept on since Trauma Team. I I don't know anything about the sales figures or anything or if it didn't do well or anything like that, but it, it's not a series we've heard a peep out of ever since and I, I think it's it's really ripe for revisiting, certainly. According to the what with VR? You should do a VR one. <laughs> Get on the yeah, PS3 that, that, and do a VR I, one. I, t I tell you, tell you what does annoy me is the fact that every single platform in recent memory has had a version of Surgeon Simulator on it. And Sur Surgeon Simulator is amusing for five. Minutes. It's a party game. It's not a. It's not yeah. a serious game. It's fun. No, it's, it, it's not a serious game at all. But but every platform has had a Surgeon Simulator on it. There, but at this point, including PSVR. And but I can't get a new trauma center game. Yeah, it just it just it just upsets me. <laughs> well, maybe anyway, maybe some yeah. independent developer will make a trauma center inspired game. <laughs> you know, like that seems like that's the kind of thing that could happen. Yeah, at, at this point, that 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 feels like the the most likely way something like that. Happens. You know, like. Uh, one of the series that I wanted to bring up today that I decided not to bring up was uh, Valkyrie Profile. And one of the reasons I didn't bring up Valkyrie Profile is because at this point, so many other uh, development teams have picked up like the torch of Valkyrie Profile's style of gameplay and adapted it. Yeah. So like um, the Skullgirls team, right? They're making Indivisible, which is very inspired by Valkyrie Profile. Um, the new Neptunia, the 2D Neptunia. It's, it's just, yep. It just is Valkyrie Profile with a Neptunia skin. So, like, yep. you know, a lot of the times these series we want to come back, other other dev teams are kind of picking up the torch and kind of spiritually continuing. Yeah, I, I suppose that it, that is the one upside of the age we live in, and especially the fact that, that people can get stuff on the market a lot easier than they could do 10, 20 years ago. So... I guess that that is one upside of it, but you know it would just be nice to have a new entry in these favorite series because there's, I mean, there is something nice about just having that name, you know, oh, of the course. name of your series, having a new Wild Arms, a new Trauma Team, or whatever. That 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 would just be a nice thing to see on my shelf. Oh, no doubt. If there was a new Wild Arms, I would even break my No Collectors Editions embargo. <laughs> I would buy the biggest freaking $200 box with replica handgun or whatever. Like, I don't even care. <laughs> Give it to me. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you never know. One E3, they might surprise you. <laughs> Tokyo Game Show. That's where it'll happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well... Fingers crossed. Two months. Okay, so that's uh, that's our discussion for now. That was a pretty long one looking at the timer. Yeah, so, we can uh, talk. Eh? <laughs> Lots to say on this subject, definitely. So there are doubtless plenty more examples of series that I can think of. But yeah, this will be a good one to come back to in a future episode. Yeah, these ones I mentioned today are definitely the ones that I, I feel the strongest about um, uh, on, on sort of immediate reflection when we first spoke about this. These were the things that immediately popped into my head, so, and I'm sure it's uh, a similar situation for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's wrap things up then. So, um, before we finish, would you like to tell people where to find you online? Sure. Uh, you can find my artwork on uh, MrGilderPixels.com or on uh, Tumblr, Twitter, and Instagram as MrGilderPixels. That's M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R-P-I-X-E-L-S. 
Marvellous. Okay, and you can find my writing work as always over on MarioGamer.net. Uh, there's other videos on this channel uh, every so often when I find the time and or energy to do them. It is the middle of summer at the moment, so finding the energy in particular is a bit of a challenge at the minute, but I'm doing what I can. Um, currently at the time of recording, we're just finishing off Hyrule Warriors Month on Mario Gamer. Next month is all about Sonic, as we've already said earlier in this episode, so you can expect coverage of, uh, well, all the Sonic games I have access to from the earliest ones up until the most recent ones, including Sonic Mania, so watch out for that. So, thanks for listening, and we will see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.